Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Tyler Marie Thomas was born on September 7, 1991 to parents Kevin Siemens and LaTanya Thomas and went by Ty. She later graduated from Omaha Bryan High School and lived in Bellevue, Nebraska. At the age of 19, she was a freshman at Peru State College in Peru, Nebraska with plans to become a teacher and wanted to specialize in working with children with disabilities. She lived in a dorm on campus and loved to dance and was named captain of the school dance team. On December 3, 2010, Ty attended a party near 5th and Nebraska Streets. The partygoers were drinking, and during the night, Ty and a couple of her friends got into a heated argument, causing Ty to leave on foot and head back toward her dorm room. However, shortly before 1.30 a.m., she sent a text to a friend saying she was lost. This was strange considering someone had spotted her near the water tower, which was located just a few hundred feet away from her dorm. However, Ty never made it back home, and her friends became immediately concerned. They were even more concerned because Ty was very intoxicated, it was frigidly cold outside, and she was not wearing a coat. By 3 a.m., her concerned friends reported her missing. During the following days, search parties combed the woods around the boat launch for her body. Fellow student Joshua Keedle participated in the searches and even did an interview with the local news. Soon after, Josh was named as a person of interest in Ty's disappearance. They had gone on a date once, but she didn't like him and told her friends she wanted to avoid him. On December 9th, six days after she went missing, he was arrested for evidence tampering and providing false information to the police. Several days later, he was charged with sexually assaulting another female. This alleged incident occurred just a month before Ty disappeared. Another teenage girl came forward and claimed that in April 2008, When she was 15 years old, Josh had sexually assaulted her in Fremont, Nebraska. For this incident, he was charged with first-degree sexual assault of a minor. In addition, authorities in Madison County, Nebraska, charged him with indecent exposure after he allegedly exposed himself to a woman in Norfolk, Nebraska in 2010. Josh initially told the police that he had seen Ty walking down the street on the night of her disappearance, but didn't speak to her. Later, he said she got into his car and he drove her to the Peru boat dock on the Missouri River to smoke marijuana. He then claimed that Ty asked for a ride to Omaha and he agreed to drive her in exchange for a sexual favor. But afterward, he changed his mind and claimed that Ty got angry and accused him of sexually assaulting her and threw her cell phone at him. He said after a fight, he drove away, leaving her alone on the dock, and he went back to his campus dorm. 
Interestingly, the dock by the river is the same place where he was charged with assaulting a different woman on Halloween just a month earlier. During that incident, he threatened to throw the woman in the water if she didn't comply. After Josh gave his second statement about Ty, authorities checked the dock and found tire tracks near the riverbank, consistent with Josh's 1996 Ford Explorer. They also found drag marks leading from the tire tracks down the bank to the river's edge. In March 2012, Josh pleaded guilty to the 2008 charges. He was sentenced to 15 to 20 years in prison, but would be eligible for parole after serving eight years. In 2012, Ty's mother filed a wrongful death suit against both Josh and Peru State College. In the week before Ty's disappearance, Peru State College's director of campus security had recommended that Josh be expelled. He was failing his classes, he had been criminally charged with kicking in the door of his dorm room, two students had accused him of sexual harassment in the first two weeks after he moved in, and the campus security director knew he had been accused of sexual assault while he was a student at another Nebraska college. However, the college chose to not immediately expel him, but instead chose to not allow him to return for the second semester. Ty was officially declared dead in 2013. In 2015, the judge dismissed the lawsuit against the school, citing that there was no way the institution could have foreseen that he was a risk for violent behavior. The judge did, however, rule in favor of Ty's family in the suit against Josh. The family was awarded $2.64 billion in damages. However, since Josh is in jail with no income, they will likely never see a dime of this money. In October 2017, nearly seven years after her disappearance, Josh was finally charged with Ty's murder. There was court testimony from a jail cellmate of Josh's who said Josh told him he'd had sex with Ty and left her at the dock, and he added that he would never go to prison because they will never find the body. He was tried in early 2020, and the prosecution argued he killed Ty at the Peru boat dock and dumped her body in the river. At trial, prosecutors showed video of alleys and pathways that they believe Ty may have used the night she disappeared. Grainy VHS video surveillance from Peru State College showed Ty wandering around near her dorm using her phone from 1.06 to 1.08 a.m. on the morning of December 3, 2010. A Nebraska State Patrol investigator told the jury that Ty called and texted people at 1.25 on December 3rd. Still, at 2.15, her phone went straight to voicemail and she never made another call. In addition, Geraldine Sunderman, a Peru State student with Josh the night Ty disappeared, testified that she saw Ty walking around without a coat before returning to the dorms. She added that Josh was supposed to meet back up with her and others in a dorm room to smoke marijuana after they saw Ty, but he never showed up. She said that as soon as they got into the dorm, Josh said he had to go to his room. However, after repeatedly trying to call him, he never answered or returned as he planned to. He later asked his roommate to lie and say he was with him during those early morning hours when Ty went missing. Another witness said he saw Ty walking toward campus at about 1.30 a.m., which would have been five minutes after her phone sent its last text. 
a jury found him guilty of second-degree murder, and in 2020, he was sentenced to 71 years in prison, but will be eligible for parole after serving 35 years. Before he was sentenced, Josh apologized for making bad choices on the night Ty disappeared, but said, I did not kill Tyler. His attorney said that because physical evidence was lacking in his case, the only remaining evidence was Josh's statements, which alone did not prove that a crime had been committed. He said Tyler was distraught and possibly pregnant when she disappeared and could have purposely or accidentally hurt herself. Thankfully, the jury never bought that theory, and her murderer will now spend the majority or all of his life behind bars. Denise Diane Flume was born in January of 1968 to parents Judy and David. She was considered their miracle baby after suffering two miscarriages. That miracle would continue, and they would have another daughter named Jenny. In 1986, at the age of 18, Denise was living with her parents in Connorsville, Indiana, and was a senior at Connorsville High School. Denise excelled in school and was the treasurer of the science club and even played basketball, softball, and volleyball. She had already been accepted to Miami University in Ohio, where she planned to major in microbiology and hoped to get a track scholarship. She had been dating a boy for the last three years named Sean McClung, but they had recently broken up. Judy's mother said that after the breakup, her daughter became more social and was even looking forward to her senior prom. During spring break, on the night of March 27th, she attended a large bonfire party on someone's farmland with hundreds of other students. Afterward, she made it home safely, but then realized she had forgotten her purse at the party. The next day, she asked multiple friends, including her sister, to accompany her to the farm to retrieve her purse, but none of them could go, so she went alone. That would be the last time anyone would ever speak to Denise. When Denise didn't return home that evening, her family reported her missing. The police said it was typical teenage behavior and that she would likely come home soon. However, they couldn't have been more wrong. The following day, a farmer reported Denise's cream-colored 1981 Buick Regal locked and abandoned near a barn alongside Tower Road, a rural gravel road east of Glenwood. This area is around three miles from the location of the party. He said the car had been there since between 12.30 and 1.15 p.m. the day prior. After the car was found, the police finally began looking for her. However, she was nowhere to be found. Several months later, a Norfolk, Virginia woman called Denise's parents, claiming to be their daughter. With their interest piqued, they traveled to Norfolk to see who the girl was. Interestingly, the girl had called on Judy's day off, information that only Denise would have known. She also said many things on the call that sounded like something Denise would say. When they arrived in Norfolk, the girl initially denied calling the family, but eventually came clean and said she called because she thought she had seen Denise at a local shopping center. Unfortunately, this would prove to be a dead end, and the case would go cold for many years. In 2017, Sean McClung, the ex-boyfriend of Denise, was given a voice stress test regarding his involvement in her disappearance, and he failed. In 2018, investigators continued looking into Sean, 
and following a tip from a former girlfriend of his, they searched the Mary Gray Bird Sanctuary. Cadaver dogs alerted to the possibility of human remains at the fourth pond at the sanctuary. After a long delay due to torrential rains, the pond was searched, but unfortunately, nothing was found. In 2020, Sean was interviewed again by authorities. This time, he was in jail on two unrelated cases and would finally provide investigators with the answers they had been searching for all these years. I like, get out of hell. Okay. I really would. Okay. I mean, really. Yeah. But I, I don't know what's expected of me. It was, you know, well, I do. And I don't. No games, no buys. I'm here now, and no games on my end either, man. We just want to know what happened, and we just want to find her and take care of this. So what happened that morning? Sean told police that Denise had picked him up on the day of her disappearance, and they headed toward the farm where the party was. However, they got into a nasty argument, which ended in Denise's murder. Very good. Joey's tough, man. I can't, I'm trying to just put this shit back together. But I've done so hard to just bury now I better bring it back out. I just, I'm starting to see her face again. I haven't had to for a long time. Right. You know, we were sitting there talking and, uh, uh, I put my hands on her and push her to the ground. That was it. Sean then called a few friends to help move her body. He confessed in exchange for a promise of immunity for his statements and dismissal of the two unrelated charges, but he refused to lead authorities to her body, or maybe he just didn't know where she was. However, since the agreement for immunity required him not to withhold any information, he couldn't receive immunity for his confession. Instead, he was charged with voluntary manslaughter in her presumed death. At the time of his confession, Sean was suffering from a terminal illness and died two months after his confession at the age of 56. In the hospital, five days before his death, he told his lawyer that he didn't know what had happened to Denise and had only confessed to killing her because he wanted to get out of jail basically recanting his confession. In April of 2021, EquiSearch Midwest, along with CCRT, Indiana K-9 Search and Recovery, and the Fayette County Sheriff's Department searched for her remains. The search resulted in no reporting of any specific discoveries, but Denise's father remarked that it gives them a better idea of where Denise's remains are not located. There is one location they want to search, but have not been allowed to do so by the owner. This property is owned by the Johnson family, with a pond that has since been filled in. Another search was performed in October of 2022 by the Indiana K-9 SAR team, free of charge. They searched different properties based on information from Denise's family. Those property owners were cooperative and also very helpful with the search. Her parents remain hopeful and determined to find their daughter and properly lay her to rest. So what do y'all think? Did Sean kill Denise or was he just trying to get out of jail? 
Jessica O'Grady was born in Nebraska. At the age of 19, Jessica was a sophomore at the University of Nebraska with dreams of becoming a teacher. She was paying her way through college by working as both a waitress at a local steakhouse and at a local daycare. People who knew her described her as lively and free-spirited. In 2006, she was living in an apartment at 5360 South 156 Court, Unit 324 in Omaha, Nebraska, with two female roommates. On the night of May 10th, Jessica and her friends were having a get-together at her apartment. At around 11 p.m., Jessica received a text message from a guy named Chris, who asked her to come over and hang out. She agreed and headed for his home, but sadly never returned and was never seen again. Two days later, her friends and family became concerned about her whereabouts and well-being. Finally, when she failed to show up for work, Jessica's family reported her missing. Soon after, they found her car abandoned across from the restaurant where she worked. The guy she was going to see was Chris Edwards, and this was confirmed by her friend Carrie, who she called while she was on her way to his house. When Chris was interviewed, he said that he was at a movie with some friends, an alibi that checked out. However, that movie ended at 11.30 p.m., When asked about meeting up, Edwards told police that Jessica decided not to meet up with him and said he sent her a text the next day asking why she didn't come over. Little did he know that the investigator already had Jessica's phone records. After May 10th, he never sent Jessica another text message, which raised serious red flags to investigators. Edwards also tried to confuse the investigation by claiming Jessica visited his house on the night of May 9th, but this was proven false after they spoke with her family and friends. It was around this time that investigators also discovered that Jessica had recently taken a pregnancy test and it was positive. But there was some confusion throughout Jessica's circle of friends because there was another Chris in her life. His name was Chris Ryan, and Jessica had dated him several months earlier. Police also found out that this Chris was on the sex offenders list and had served over two years in prison for his crime. However, he also had a solid alibi, and phone records showed that the two had not communicated in the week prior to her disappearance. When investigators looked through her phone records, they discovered at 12.29 a.m., Over an hour after Jessica left her apartment, she sent a message to a friend that said, no more shenanigans for Jessica. Her friend knew for sure that Jessica sent the message because they were known to use the code word shenanigans when talking about sex. Investigators now wanted to know where she sent the text from, but certain phone companies do not keep a record of that for more than 24 hours, so police could not determine the location. Investigators learned that Chris Edwards had been dating other girls while he was with Jessica. One of them was his girlfriend, Michelle, who was also pregnant. It was also discovered that Michelle and Jessica knew each other because they had both worked at the steakhouse. Edwards told Michelle that he wanted to build a life with her, but at the same time, he convinced Jessica that Michelle was just a fling. Jessica had already told Edwards that he was the father of her baby, and that she intended to keep it. On a hunch, investigators decided to re-interview Edwards. They noticed during the interview that he kept talking about Jessica in both the present and past tense. 
raising serious red flags with investigators. He had also confided in friends that he got Jessica pregnant by mistake and was not happy about it. During the interview, Edwards stuck to his story about being at the movies with friends that night, which investigators confirmed with security footage. But they also saw camera footage of Edwards at a Walgreens the day after her disappearance, buying cleaning supplies and white poster paint and whiteout. Edwards lived in the basement of his aunt's house, and investigators asked if they could look around. He agreed, but strangely said he didn't want them to look at his bed or his camping equipment. During the search of his home, investigators noticed section of drywall with different shades of white. After a closer look, they noticed that the shades were covering stains of blood. Edward's explanation was that he had cut his finger. However, the splatter pattern was not consistent with a simple finger cut. They also found two swords, including an 18-inch long Bangkok battle sword. The weapons are often used in martial arts and could have caused the cylindrical blood spatter in his room. Though the swords had been cleaned, there were still traces of human blood. In the garage, luminol was used, and it revealed that blood had been cleaned up. After turning over his mattress, police found a huge blood stain as well as blood on the headboard and comforter. There was blood in his car as well as a dirty shovel. Though the soul could not be identified, police sent the grass on the shovel to an agricultural college, where they concluded that it was the type of grass that grows on a golf course. Edward's mattress and part of his ceiling were removed and taken to the forensic laboratory. Without having Jessica's body, the police had to get her DNA from her personal belongings, such as a toothbrush and hair from a comb. When the DNA results came in, it showed that her blood was all over his room, including the battle sword. Police and over a hundred volunteers searched for Jessica's body, but she was never found. Edwards was ultimately charged with murder, but he continued to deny involvement. Prosecutors believed he was not serious about his relationship with Jessica, so he got angry when she told him she was pregnant. Edwards' alibi was that he had gone to a movie that night, but the movie ended early enough that he had time to meet Jessica at his home. He was offered a lesser sentence for disclosing where her body was, but he refused. As a result, he was convicted of second-degree murder with the use of a deadly weapon. This conviction earned him a 100-year sentence with eligibility for parole in 2056. Over the years, investigators have tried to locate Jessica's body, but as of April 2023, she remains missing. Evelyn Throsby was born on May 11th 1892, and had a brother named Raymond. Over the years, Evelyn had gone through multiple marriages, with the first two marriages ending in divorce. She married two more times, but in each of those marriages, she was left a widow. However, they both left her with a very large fortune, which she invested skillfully with the assistance of a financial management firm. Her passion was traveling, and she had been all over the world and would always leave an itinerary with her attorney in case he needed to reach her. In the summer of 1949, when Evelyn would have been about 57, she met a man four years younger than her at a society party. His name was Ewing Scott, and the couple married just a few months later in Mexico in 1950. After the wedding, 
the two settled into a mansion in the wealthy Los Angeles neighborhood of Bel Air at 217 North Bentley Avenue. Following their marriage, Ewing gradually assumed control of Evelyn's finances, telling her he could manage her money better than her investment counselors. He identified himself as an investment broker and land developer, but strangely, he had no source of income. He convinced her to fire her secretary and took over paying her bills and dealing with her banking business. Shockingly, he told their maid that he didn't really love Evelyn and admitted to marrying her just for the money. He asked the maid to eavesdrop on Evelyn's telephone conversations and monitor her mail, but she refused and was subsequently fired. Ewing then urged Evelyn to convert her assets to cash, and so she cashed about $223,000 worth of securities. She also withdrew $180,000 in income from her estate, but left behind a substantial amount of money in bank accounts and safe deposit boxes. Friends and acquaintances reported seeing Evelyn with bruises while she and Ewing were married. Many of her friends, as well as her brother, didn't like her new husband at all. Unfortunately, this led to her and her brother Raymond becoming estranged. On the afternoon of May 16, 1955, Ewing and 63-year-old Evelyn took a Mercedes-Benz out for a test drive from a car lot, but strangely, only Ewing returned. This was the last time Evelyn was ever seen. The next day, Evelyn's hair salon received a call from a man who canceled all her upcoming appointments. They found this strange, considering she had been going to this salon once a week for many years now. Sometimes Ewing would claim that Evelyn left the house to buy a can of tooth powder and never returned. Other times, he would say that she had been sent to a sanitarium for alcoholism or that she may be somewhere in the East. Anytime someone asked how to get in touch with her, he basically refused to answer. A friend of Evelyn's checked with all the sanitariums in the area, but Evelyn wasn't a patient in any of them. She received psychiatric treatment for anxiety several months in the late 1940s, but had been in good mental health for years prior to her disappearance. This friend also offered rewards for information leading to Evelyn's whereabouts. Still, the weeks and months went by with no sign of her, and Ewing refused to report her missing. Just two months later, in July 1955, Ewing began a relationship with Harriet Livermore, a divorcee. On March 5, 1956, Evelyn's brother Raymond Throsby, suspicious of Ewing, reported Evelyn's disappearance to the police, beginning the investigation. The district attorney soon learned that Ewing was forging her name to checks, and her brother filed a lawsuit demanding an accounting of all her assets. Los Angeles police arrested Ewing and charged him with forgery and fraud for looting his wife's bank accounts after they visited Evelyn's safe deposit boxes and found only envelopes filled with sand. Ewing had withdrawn large sums from Evelyn's safe deposit boxes and deposited those funds in his own accounts. Police then began searching for Evelyn, and upon searching her neighbor's backyard, where an incinerator was located, they found two pairs of her eyeglasses, dentures, and a few other personal belongings. They also found a pair of women's charred underwear. However, there was no indication that Evelyn's body had been burned in the backyard incinerator. 
almost one year after her disappearance, a grand jury indicted Ewing for grand theft and forgery in connection with the liquidation of nearly $1 million of Evelyn's assets. Before he was supposed to come to court in May to make a plea, he fled to Canada and became a wanted fugitive. A few days later, his car was found abandoned in Santa Monica. A bullet had been shot through the window, but there was no blood in the car or the surrounding area. On April 16, 1957, he left Canada and headed for Detroit, Michigan, where he would purchase a car with Evelyn's money. However, upon returning to cross back into Canada, he was arrested. He was then extradited back to Los Angeles. Ewing insisted he did nothing wrong and argued that he could not be prosecuted without a body. During the 11-week trial, the defense produced witnesses who testified that they had seen Evelyn after May 16, 1955. One of them, a railroad ticket agent, said Evelyn had bought a train ticket from her in July and said she was leaving her husband, but that he didn't know it. After deliberating for 29 hours, they found Ewing guilty of first-degree murder. The first-degree murder charge was due to Evelyn's sudden interrupted life pattern, and prosecutors said Ewing killed his wife to gain control of her estate. While prosecutors were looking for the death penalty, the jurors gave him life in prison instead. Ewing was granted parole in 1974, but turned it down, saying to accept it would be an admission of guilt. He was eventually set free in 1978 after serving 21 years. After his release, he lived on a small state allowance in a rundown mid-Wilshire apartment, still insisting that his wife was alive. However, this would all change after a journalist named Diane Wagner wanted to write a book about the case and began talking to Ewing from time to time. Finally, in 1986, 30 years after her disappearance, the journalist produced a tape recording where Ewing appeared to admit to the murder. He described that he struck her once on the head with a rubber mallet and then buried her body in the desert six miles east of Las Vegas, Nevada. Wagner's book, Corpus Delecti, was published in 1986 and included Ewing's confession during the last interview. The confession surprised investigators, who had always assumed that the body was concealed in some part of the San Diego freeway, which had been under construction near the couple's home at the time of the murder. Ewing was the first murderer in U.S. history to be convicted without a body. Ewing died in 1987 at the age of 91, and as of 2023, Evelyn's remains have never been located. Kristen Denise Smart, a native of Stockton, California, was born on February 20, 1977. At the age of 19, she was a freshman at California Polytechnic State University, known as Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, and was living in the Muir Hall dormitory. Kristen was described by those closest to her as a very friendly and generous individual. She was a competitive swimmer and had traveled to many places, including Hawaii and South America. She had originally enrolled at the University of California at Santa Barbara, but transferred to Cal Poly early in her freshman year. On May 25, 1996, she attended an off-campus party with other college students on Crandall Way. 
After becoming intoxicated, she briefly passed out on the lawn and was struggling to walk. She later left on foot close to 2 a.m., headed to her dorm with Paul Flores and Cheryl Anderson. Once they reached the intersection of Perimeter Road and Grand Avenue, Paul said he would see Kristen home, so Cheryl went her own separate way. This was the last time Kristen was ever seen again. Later that day, on May 25th, her roommate contacted the police after Kristen failed to return home. When investigators interviewed Paul, he said that he walked Kristen as far as his dorm, where they parted ways and claimed that after she left, he didn't know what happened. You had, it's been almost a month, it'll be a month yes. this, this Friday. Based on everything you know and the people you've talked to, which I'm sure you've talked to some people. About what? About the right party? About her. What do you think happened to Roxy? What's your best, your best guess as to what happened to her? My best guess is maybe, she, you know, um, because her dorm was by the parking lot over there, so then I would figure, my best guess is she, um, guess is she went off with someone. I don't know. She decided, you know. Okay. Uh, a stranger or what? I, it could have been just someone she knows. She knows someone might have gone, you know, hey, hey, let's go to Taco Bell or something. Why Taco Bell? Because Taco Bell's open all night long. Oh, okay. And is that the only place that's open all night long? Sandless? Yeah, I think so, for sure. Okay. Now, based on you walking with her, do you think she could walk up to Taco Bell okay? As it's, it's, I remember, I, I don't remember her stumbling or anything, so so I, I've, I've walked that far. It's like I've walked all the way up to like Broad Street over by Laurelin's Bowl before. When you were drunk? No, sober. So. However, investigators noticed that Paul strangely had a black eye. When asked about it, he would then tell several different stories regarding his injury. At one point, he claimed he had hurt his eye playing basketball with a friend. But the friend told authorities he had the bruise when he showed up to the game. When confronted with the lie, Paul changed his story and told the police he hurt his eye while working on a truck at his father's home. He then told a third story to another friend where he claimed he didn't know how he got the black eye and said he just woke up with it. Exactly how you hit your eye that got that black eye. It's like I was just like working. It's like I, I like the seeds out. It's like I was grabbing the wires and I remember I just like popped up. I don't remember exactly. Which eye did you hit? I think it was this one. It's like I don't remember. Wait. Yeah, this one. Okay. Show me how you hit it while you're pulling the wires. It's, 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 I just came up and just hit it like right here. And then it wasn't actually the eye, it was just, the, just like right here. You must have hit it pretty hard. No, didn't even hit it very hard. Why well, didn't it bruise so bad? It didn't. It's the only bruise. It's just like a little line right here. Yeah, it's a pretty good bruise. Not really. It wasn't. Never swelled. Never was sore. Okay. But what did you tell us? Because I told you I got an elbow playing basketball. Okay. And why did you tell us that? Because I didn't think it would matter. Authorities refused to take the missing persons report for four days because Kristen disappeared on Memorial Day weekend, and college students often took impromptu vacations at that time. Kristen's parents have criticized authorities for not getting involved in the case sooner, saying they probably lost valuable evidence because of it. Even the police admit the delay hampered the investigation. Interestingly, at the time, Scott and Lacey Peterson were seniors at the college. As you may know, Scott and Lacey later married 
and he was convicted of murdering her and their unborn son. In fact, in 2003, it was suggested that Scott could be involved in Kristen's disappearance and presumed murder, but that was proved untrue. Eventually, law enforcement searched remote parts of Cal Poly campus on horseback, and helicopters were used to canvas the area. Investigators interviewed those closest to Kristen, and Paul was identified as a person of interest very early on, but continued to deny involvement. Four cadaver dogs were sent into Paul's dorm room and alerted to human remains having been in the room, specifically his mattress, but no other evidence was located at the time. It was also suspicious that Paul had removed all his belongings from his room at Santa Lucia Hall before the search even took place. After Kristen's disappearance, he dropped out of Cal Poly, but was already close to failing out. He was then arrested for driving while intoxicated and lost his driver's license. After Kristen's disappearance, he was charged with drunk driving several more times, totaling five DUIs by 2021. People who knew him while he was a student at Cal Poly stated that Paul drank heavily and tended to become loud and obnoxious when drunk. This behavior continued even after he left the school. He even had the nickname Chester the Molester while at Cal Poly due to his sexually aggressive behavior towards women. In 1998, two years after Kristen disappeared, Paul was arrested on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon but was never prosecuted. Missing person posters and billboards offering rewards appeared along roads and in other public places. With no sign of Kristen, her family filed a $40 million wrongful death lawsuit against Paul. However, during a deposition, he refused to answer any questions, citing the Fifth Amendment. Just the types of questions that I would be asked, and we can just have the blanket invocation. I get your uh, position on that on the record, so when I go to a reviewing court, I have a clear and fair record. As I indicated, he plans to answer that he will invoke the Fifth Amendment on all your questions. If you have questions to direct to my client, go ahead and ask questions. Save the speeches for later. Just ask the questions. Okay, well, Mr. Delamont, it's not a speech. It's a civil proceeding. If you're not going to ask uh, questions, we'll discontinue the deposition leave. No, if you're no, here no, to no. take a deposition, no. if you want to ask questions, go ahead. I'm going to make a record of my position in this case, Mr. Delamont. You can make the record some other time. Ask the questions. That's what a deposition is for. Okay. Not to make a speech. You can make a speech to the court. You can do it in writing. You can do it orally. Mm -hmm. Ask the questions. We're here to answer the questions. We're required to do so. Ask the questions or we'll leave. All right. I'm going to make my record here. I've been advised that he's not going to answer the questions. So let's start asking the questions. This ultimately led to the case being dropped. The Smart family persisted in getting investigators to develop evidence against Paul. Dennis Mahon, a friend of the Smarts, published a website that gave Paul's address and would update this address every time Paul moved. This led Paul's family to get a restraining order against Dennis, and he was jailed at least once for violating it. Kristen's family declared her legally dead in 2002, but the search and the investigation continued. In 2005, Paul's mother and her boyfriend sued Kristen's parents and Dennis, alleging harassment, severe emotional distress, and loss of income due to their behavior. 
Over a period of nearly 25 years, authorities executed 18 search warrants, submitted 37 items collected in the case's early days for DNA testing, recovered 140 new items of evidence, and conducted 91 interviews from 2011 to 2020. The authorities began to describe Paul Flores as the prime suspect in the case. In February 2020, law enforcement executed search warrants at four California and Washington state locations and removed items of interest. One of these locations was Paul's home in Los Angeles. In March 2021, investigators used cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar to search Paul's father, Ruben Flores's property in Arroyo Grande, California, but they were still unable to locate Kristen. However, on April 13, 2021, nearly 25 years after her disappearance, the authorities announced that Paul Flores, now 45, and his father Ruben Flores, now 81, had been arrested in connection with her disappearance. In a statement, the Smart family described their long wait as bittersweet. Paul was charged with murder, and Ruben was charged with being an accessory after the fact. Accused of helping to bury her remains, both men pleaded not guilty. The day after the arrest, the district attorney said, that Paul Flores had caused Kristen's death while attempting to sexually assault her in his dorm room. They then believe Reuben helped to hide her remains. On October 18, 2022, Paul was found guilty of murdering Kristen, while Reuben was ultimately acquitted. In March 2023, Paul was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, the maximum allowed, with eligibility for parole in 15 years. Authorities believe Kristen's body was buried at Ruben's home at 710 White Court in Arroyo Grande, California, but was moved at some point. When they dug at the residence, they found a patch of undisturbed soil under the deck, consistent with a shallow grave. A cadaver-sniffing dog alerted to remains having been at that site. The soil had traces of blood in it, but investigators were unable to obtain DNA from it. They did, however, find fibers of various colors in the soil, matching the colors of the clothing Kristen was last seen wearing that night. A man who rented a room at Reuben's home for 10 years said Reuben had spoken to him about Kristen and referred to her by a derogatory word. The tenant said the access door leading under the house was always padlocked, and in the 10 years he lived there, he never saw Reuben open it, not even once. Authorities also stated that in about 2014, when there was a leak in Reuben's kitchen, he refused to let a plumber go under the deck to repair it and was protective of whatever was under there. A neighbor of Reuben stated that in February 2020, she saw Reuben and his ex-wife, Paul's mother, Susan, and Susan's boyfriend, Mike McConville, trying to back an enclosed travel trailer up to the back of Reuben's house near the deck. The next day, the neighbor saw Susan and Mike at Reuben's house again, which struck her as odd since she knew they lived nearby and she had never seen them spend the night at Reuben's home before. In addition, the neighbor said she had never seen trailers at Reuben's house before or since and never saw Susan or Mike spend the night there after that one instance. When they searched Paul's home, police found sexually assault-themed pornography, homemade videos showing Paul, having sex with women who appear to be drifting in and out of consciousness, and two prescription medications that could be used as sexual assault drugs. 
More than two dozen women have made allegations of sexual misconduct against him, dating back to the late 1990s. Four of these women claim they were drugged and sexually assaulted after meeting Paul at bars or at his home. Investigators believe he enjoyed this level of abuse against women. As of April 2023, Kristen has never been found. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.